the scriptures open so you can read along with me at this incredible moment in Ruth chapter 4 that kind of seems out of place in a romantic story, but it has a very significant um, purpose to teach us about what God has been doing uh, uh, since the dawn of time and what God is doing today for us here this morning. At the end of the day, the Bible is about redemption. That's the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is that God is redeeming creation back to himself. The title of the message today is Our True Redeemer, Our Ultimate Redemption. Our True Redeemer, Our Ultimate Redemption. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we already talked about Boaz in the story of Ruth as a reflection of Jesus. And today we're going to really unpack that in chapter 4. But what you have to understand is God is a redeeming God. Now what does redemption mean? When I was growing up, redemption um, was all about bottles and cans. How many know what I'm talking about? How many remember that the people in Maine got double the money? What was up with Maine? You know, you know, pack up all your cans into your car, drive up to Maine for the weekend. You know, don't worry about it, kids. Have all that you want. It's on the bottles and cans. Hallelujah. My parents used to put them all into a bag. We'd go to stop and show up. Amen. We'd go to that big can munching machine. Remember this? Dump the cans, the bottles in, listen for the crunch of the cans and the bottles. As a 12-year-old boy, I'd be like, yeah, that's so cool. Listen to the cans and bottles dying so terribly. <laughs> I was a disturbed child. Anyway, uh, in the Bible, redemption is not about like uh, cans and bottles. In the Bible, redemption is about bringing back, purchasing out of slavery, purchasing out of bondage. All through the Bible, there's this theme of being redeemed. And the Old Testament is going to paint some pictures about redemption so that we understand what it means for us and what Christ has done for us. See, here's what you need to understand. That in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given dominion, authority. They were given this responsibility over creation to rule creation and, and create out of creation, cultivate and develop the world the way God wanted it developed. And, and it was supposed to be done a lot like we are now, right, right now, developing the world. But it was supposed to be done without sin, shame, guilt, pain, and hatred. But what happened in the Garden of Eden set the course of human history way off course. They sold themselves out to the enemy. He, he took the dominion that was given them by God. And ever since that day, we have been suffering the consequences. Ever since that day, we have been struggling with hatred and violence and um, sexual immorality and uh, racism and nationalism and all the things that you see on the news and you look at them and you say, what's wrong with this world? What's wrong with this world is that this world needs to be put back right to the way that God originally intended. How is God doing that? God is redeeming men and women one person at a time all over the world, bringing them back to himself through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Our God is a redeeming God. This is what you need. This is what I need. We need redemption. We need the things in our lives to be made right. And that's why the story of Ruth, at the end of the day, is a story about redemption. Quick recap. It starts in the days of the judges, a terrible season in human history, especially for Israel, where everybody was doing whatever they thought was right. A lot like America today. Everybody's doing whatever they think is right. 
in the times of the judges, there's a famine, Ruth chapter 1. And this guy named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, they move out of the land. They go to a foreign land. They go to the Moabites, this ancient nemesis nation of the people of Israel who once actually led Israel's sons into sexual morality. And because of their prostitution with the Moabite women, God brought judgment upon Israel. This is in Deuteronomy and, and uh, Numbers, and you can read about it there. But this ancient nemesis, they move to the country of Moab, and they bring their sons with them. And in the country of Moab, Elimelech dies tragically, and Naomi actually marries off her sons to Moabite women. This is not supposed to happen. These are terrible choices they're all making. We talked about this in week one. And then in the midst of that, she ends up with this, um, this Moabite daughter-in-law named Ruth, and her sons die, and there's Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-laws, left. And uh, she's got to go back to Israel now because she's got nothing left for her here in Moab. So she goes back, and Ruth, this amazing, loyal person, stays with Naomi. She's willing to leave her family, leave her nation, follow Naomi back to Israel. And then she gets there, and she goes straight to work as a poor uh, uh, slave girl. And she's harvesting the grain from the corners of the fields. And she's doing whatever she can to make ends meet for her and Naomi. And wouldn't you know, she happens to end up in Boaz field and it's like all these circumstantial events that are really not circumstantial they're all divine providence working through all the mess of their lives how many know it's good to know that God can work through the bad decisions and the good decisions and the up decisions and the bad down decisions God's always working through your decisions and so Ruth goes to the field she's working for Boaz Boaz blesses her and and gives her grain in abundance, and for seven weeks she makes a killing in Boaz's field. And then Ruth chapter 3, last time we were together in this, in this series, we got Naomi coming up with this brilliant plan. Go on down to the threshing floor where Boaz is sleeping at the foot of a heap of grain. Uncover homeboy's legs. Lay down next to him, all suggestive-like. Like, basically, contextually, she's saying to Boaz, uh, if you're interested in marrying me, the answer is yes. Boaz wakes up because his feet are cold. Looks next to him, and there's Ruth just sitting there all pretty. And he says, what is this? Who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me because you're a redeemer. And we talked about this last week. Better way to find love. If you haven't seen that message, go watch it. And so then she, she says this to him. He says, wow, this is a better kindness than what you've shown already. He's floored by what she's done, her, her, her leaving her foreign land, loving Naomi like her own mother, like her own blood, joining up with the people of Israel, like following God. And he takes notice of her. And so, you know, you just see the, the romantic tension has built to this climactic moment in Ruth chapter 3, where you got, she likes him. And now we know he likes her. And he says, I'll, I'll marry. I'm going to marry. I'll do everything that you want. And it's so beautiful. It's like this moment, this climactic moment, the romantic. You can almost hear the music. Go into the chapel and we're going to get married. Go into the chapel.
Like it stops like abruptly at that moment and you're like, what's this? And here's what happens. Let's back up a little bit. Ruth chapter 3 because right when he says, I'll, I'll do everything you want. Very next verse. And now it is true, he says. I am a redeemer. Yet. Somebody say yet. How many hate the yets in your life? <laughs> yet. There is a redeemer that's nearer than I. In the Old Testament, the law was that the closest kin relative had the right of first refusal for redeeming poor families out of their condition. And he says, remain tonight in the morning. I will see if he will redeem you. And if he does, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. How many know Ruth wasn't getting much sleep that night? And you have to see the picture here that I, I think Hollywood has read the book of Ruth because I see so many romantic, so many movies that have this theme. I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen it. Where there's one girl who's with the wrong guy and you know she should be with the other guy. Yeah. And, and you just, almost all movies do this. Like I'm thinking of The Notebook. Is she going to go with Lon? Or is she going to marry up with, with Noah? You know, the scruffy, good-looking dude, Ryan Gosling. I think about Superman Returns. Is she going to end up with Clark Kent, Brandon Ruth, or is she going to end up with James Marsden? I think about X-Men. Is Creepy Eye Girl going to end up with Hugh Jackman or... James Marsden. I think about Enchanted. Is she going to end up with Patrick Dempsey or is she going to end up with James Marsden? Poor James Marsden. This guy got a rider in his contract. I have to play the other guy. Somebody marry James Marsden for the heaven's sake. And then I think about like Ruth. Here we go. We got the same exact tension. Boaz. If you read a little disclaimer, an actor currently not, not, not accused of molesting people. If you're watching this from the future, please know that at this time, so far so good for George Clooney. But anyway, is she going to end up with him or, or James Marsden? And, and, you, and you just you see the tension building. And, 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 and then Ruth, turn the page, Ruth chapter 4, for his romantic as Ruth chapter 3 was. It's like the romance has been sucked completely out of the story. Because we're going to go to a courtroom setting. We're going to go to a judicial process. Ruth's not going to speak again. We're not going to see the, you know, the, 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 the story play like we see so many times. We're going to see this legal drama take place in Ruth chapter 4. And, and if you read the Bible, you're like, you, you, think, you think, why is this here? This is kind of interrupting the story. Just get me to the point where they fall in love and live happily, what, ever after. But, but the Bible is trying to tell us about something far more important than Ruth and Boaz. It's trying to talk about us. 
And what you're going to see Boaz do in Ruth 4 is exactly what Jesus has done for you and for me should we accept it. He's going to redeem us. And there's a legal issue at stake for our redemption. So I got four things Boaz does for Ruth, four things Jesus does for us, and then our fifth point today is our response. Number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus is our true redeemer because like Boaz, he fulfills the law. He fulfills the law. He says, it is true that I'm a redeemer, but there's one closer than I. Boaz, why did you have to go there? Why don't you just, you know, elope, get it done privately, just marry the girl. No, 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 no. He knows the law must be followed. God's law was set in place. The near kinsman redeemer was, was responsible for Ruth. He was second in line. So, so look what happens here. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz spoke came by, and Boaz said, Turn aside here, friend. And sit down. And so the guy turned aside, this unnamed man, and sat down. And then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. And what you need to see is the gate of the city was the judicial um, center of the city in those days. And so Boaz is convening a court. He's convening a legal process by which he kind of works out whether this unnamed redeemer or he is going to marry Ruth. And it looks like weird to us, it seems out of place, but here's what the scripture is saying to us, that our Redeemer needed to fulfill the law. Our Redeemer needed to do what God told him to do exactly and precisely. And I want to tell you something about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law for you and for me. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to what? Say it with me. Fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the law. Every Old Testament sacrifice was pointing to him. Every prophet was talking about him. Every king was in some way foreshadowing him. He is our final king. He is our final prophet. He is our final righteous man. He is our final sacrifice. And because of Jesus, the law of God no longer stands against you. The law of God is fulfilled for you because at the cross he took your sin and he provides his righteousness for everybody who will take and eat and drink of him. This is what Jesus has done. Now, I want to let you know something. It's not very romantic, but you need the law to make love happen. If you're taking notes, write this down. In fact, in matters of love, law is essential. You need the law. I know, I know. You don't see this on a Hallmark card. <laughs> I want to let you know how glad I am that we are legally bound as husband and wife. Yours in writing your husband. No. But law is essential for matters of love. See, this is why you don't shack up with people. You marry them. You waste 15 years of your life. You just jets. There's no legal recompense, no legal recourse for you. In matters of law, when it matters, you want the law. You need the law. I was thinking about how in my life, there's a particular law I've never been a fan of. It's not a biblical law, so I have no problem telling you about this here. But me and the speed limit have never exactly <laughs> seen eye to eye. This was no surprise to many of our regular Waters people. Uh, I've had a hard time with him. He's had a hard time with me. We've never gotten along. I always thought he was a little conservative. 
a little stifling, a little overprotective if you ask me. I think you need to loosen up, get a little bit, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Never really a big fan of Mr. Speed Limit. But something happened recently. My daughter got her driver's permit. Now I've had to make up with Mr. Speed Limit. I had to tell him I'm sorry. Mr. Speed Limit, I'm sorry for how I've treated you all my life. <laughs> I'm sorry for the way I've ignored you. But I am, in fact, happy that you're there. In fact, I think you're a little bit too lenient. I think around those residential areas, you'd be like five. Five sounds about right to me. What happened? Somebody that I love is now protected by the law. Now I like the law. See, we don't like the law when it comes to us, but we do like the law when it comes to those we love. This is how God sees the law. We don't like it. We, we kind of think, ah, oh, he's a cosmic killjoy. Why did he do that? No, no, no. He has put those laws in place for your flourishing, for your protection, for your blessing. And if you follow him, it will go well with you. Like, it's not rocket science either. Like, if you don't commit adultery, your life will be far less complicated. If you don't steal and rob, your life will be far less complicated. Law protects you. Now, here's the problem. We can't keep the law perfectly. The standard is not almost there. The standard is not good enough. The standard is not you're trying hard. The standard, Jesus said, is perfect. How many got that one down? Any perfect people in the house? I'll tell you what, the moment you raise your hand for that question, you've just committed lying. <laughs> I'm going to ask your mother about that. So the law cannot be kept by, we needed somebody to, to, to fulfill it so that the law would not stand against us. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for people. He's fulfilled it. Romans 8.3 says this, God has done what the law. God has done. Somebody say done. Not trying to do. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you understand, Christian, that because of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in what he did at the cross for you, that the law is now fulfilled in your life and God doesn't see your failures and he doesn't see your inconsistencies. He sees the perfect record of his son and he says, you're accepted. Now, it doesn't mean we ignore the law. We don't have to do No, no. What it means now is that we, we operate from fullness, not emptiness. His righteousness has been imputed, has been put into our record, and now we operate from a full bank account rather than a negative bank account. Romans 10, 4 says this. God, Christ has already accomplished the purposes for which the law was intended as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Let me tell you why this matters for you personally. Because if you don't follow the law of God, I guarantee you, you're going to follow somebody else's law. I guarantee it. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that there's, there's a certain standard you should live up to. You don't even have to be a Christian to believe this. How many know there is no shortage of uh, societal, societal systems that cause us to feel like we don't, we don't live up. We don't measure up. Like you might come from the family expectations law book. 
Everybody in our family goes to college, so if you're going to be anybody, you better go to college. Law. Maybe you're in the political sphere law book. You notice, you notice as, as America gets less Christian, we get more politically divided, and here's how it happens, too. Here's how it goes down. Like, if you pick, you got to pick a side, and then you've got to toe the line on every issue with that side, no matter or not if you agree with it. Everybody's got to kind of, like, become automatons to the political divide in this country. What is that? That's just another form of law that we're trying to live up to. And, or, or, or maybe the, the, the American dream law. I gotta have a wife, I gotta have three kids, I gotta have two car garage, I gotta have 2,500 square feet, and I gotta have a nice car so that my life meets the expectations of the neighborhood law. What I'm telling you is there's no shortage of laws that we can feel like have caused us anxiety and fear because we don't measure up to what is expected of us. Here's the good news about the law of God. At Sinai, he gave the law. But at the cross on Calvary, he fulfilled the law. And now the law no longer stands against you. You're accepted in the beloved. You are redeemed to the Lord. You are his child. You're his son. You're his daughter. You matter to him. He's got his hand on you. And nobody can take you away from him. The law is fulfilled. Number two, our true redeemer pays our debt. And what transpires here between Boaz and Ruth is significant because with this nameless redeemer, uh, Boaz kind of gives him an opportunity to purchase Ruth back. So look with me here at verse 3. It says this. Boaz said to the redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you about it and say, buy it here in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders. And if you redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me, because I come after you. And, and the guy hears about the land, and he's like, I'll take that. Sure, I'll redeem the land, because he wants, he wants the income of the land, but he doesn't want the responsibilities. And then it goes like this. Then Boaz said, okay. I love Boaz's strategy here. He, like, tempts him with the offer of the land, and then he kind of sneaks Ruth in. And he goes, the day you buy the land from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer suddenly has his jaw drop. He's like, no, I can't do that. Oh, no, no, no. And look at how he just protests, like, lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. And then he does this thing, this weird thing about, you know, the law. It was like this thing about the sandal. So he takes the sandal off. He gives it to Boaz as a signif uh, signifying that he is surrendering his right as a redeemer. And now picking it up in verse 9, here's what happens. Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and the people, you are witnesses this day that I have Say the word, everybody. Bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and Malin. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow Malin, I have bought to be my wife. You see what happens? The nameless redeemer foregoes his right, and he, he foregoes his right to redeem Ruth. You know why? Because he's scared he doesn't have enough money to cover the cost. And I think about this, about this nameless redeemer. 
in the book of Ruth, everybody gets a name. I mean everybody's name. This is a book filled with names. Even Orpah gets her name written down in Holy Scripture because she's the girl that goes back to Moab. The only person who gets no name is the guy who won't take care of Ruth. I thought about he is a symbol of every other idol we chase outside of Christ. He's the symbol of that, that fancy new house you're looking for, that you serve and you worship and you want that. Or he's a symbol of that, that person that you think you should be married to because if you marry them, then you'll feel significant and you'll feel like you're somebody and your life will go where you need it to go. And you serve them and you think, and you all unintentionally make an idol out of them or that education or that lifestyle or, or whatever you're chasing out there that you think, if I get that, I will finally be somebody. And someday, listen, someday you're going to get to the end of your life. You're going to be old and gray and realize that all those things were false idols that did not need to be chased. There was one person who was there every step of the way, and his name was Jesus. He's the only one worthy of your worship and your service because he'll never let you down. The nameless redeemer says, I can't. And Boaz says, I can. I can pay the debt. I can purchase this girl. You understand that you had a debt before God. The debt of sin. This is, we all know this is true. Because we all try to make up for our sins with trying to do better. Right? This is what happens every year. January 1st. Come on. Gonna do it this year. I'm gonna do better. I need to be. What are we trying to do? We're trying to cover for something. We're trying to cover our debts. We're trying to cover our badness. Some of you live by the "I'm a good person" religion of America. I'm a good person. That's how I'm getting to have. How do you mean? How do you know you're a good person? Let me just ask you something. Do you even follow your own expectations for yourself? You don't. You fail, and we try to cover it up, try to cover it up, try to make up for our mistakes, and you can't because they're still out there. You need somebody who has the resources to pay for your mistakes. That's Jesus. He pays our debt. He purchases us back to God. Revelation 5, 9 says this, with the blood of your death, you bought people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And somebody said, I don't, I don't like that idea of being bought. I don't, I'm an independent person. I don't like being bought. Nobody's going to own me. Listen, if God doesn't own you, something else will own you. Something else will be your savior. Something else will be your master. If it's not God, something else will own your life. You ever buy a new car? You ever buy a new car? Like you had a good car that was fine and it was old and the kids could get in there with their uh, Dorito chips and it didn't matter. And you're like, yeah, whatever, have fun. Go ahead, kids, whatever. It's a piece of junk anyway. You get a new car, suddenly you become a dictator. Don't get in the car. You might ruin the car. I'll bring your food in here. In fact, don't even breathe in the car. Don't even want to breathe. You can ride in the car, but you cannot breathe. What do you do? You serve in the car. Now the car has owned you. You thought you owned the car. Now the car owns you. In, in, in the words, thank you. In the words of the great theologian Bob Dylan. You gotta serve somebody. Even he knew. If you don't serve God, you'll serve somebody else. I read this article in the Atlantic this week. It was, 
kind of a funny article, how to hire fake friends and family. Here's the tagline of the article. In Japan, you can now pay an actor to impersonate your relative, spouse, coworker, or any kind of acquaintance. And I got a friend, um, he was a missionary in Japan for 20 years. I said, listen, what's the spiritual climate of Japan like? He said, they worship and serve the almighty dollar. Everything there is about how much money you can make. Everything. Isn't it amazing that after years and decades and maybe centuries of worshiping money, they've ended up lonely, and now they need to take their money to purchase what they lost in chasing money. This is the problem with not serving God, because you'll serve everything else, and it will leave you high and dry in another way, so that you end up having to use that to chase something else. The article is eye-opening. The guy says he sees nothing but profitability in his business since he knows and he sees that the country is getting lonelier and lonelier. He says he's been posing as a eight-year-old girl's father for 10 years. She just graduated high school. She doesn't even know he's not her father. He's been paid $200 a month by her mother to pose as her part-time dad. He says that one guy, one very rich man, hired five people to be his fake friends for a weekend in Las Vegas so that he could take pictures with them and post it to Facebook. How many know if you don't serve God, you'll serve anything? What's that? That's slavery. How ironic that we run everywhere to find what we need from God that God paid for us to have. See, in God's economy, we don't have to pay God for him to be our friend. No, he pays the price to be our father. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says this, God bought you with a high price. He paid to be with you. Isn't that crazy? Some of you feel like nothing and nobodies. i got news for you. There's a God in heaven who wants to know you, love you, and bring you close to himself. The blood of Christ testifies to this reality. Number three, Jesus our true redeemer. He unites us to himself. He unites himself to us. Though it says, Ruth the Moabite, I take to be my wife. Now, if there's one human relationship that defines the gospel, it is the relationship of marriage. Over and over and over again, the Bible is teaching us about what God has done for us through the illustration of marriage. Jesus, the bridegroom, the church, the bride, married. And there's a passage in Ephesians 5. That every married person loves with all their hearts. Especially you women. Oh, you love it, don't you? Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. How many women in the house? That's your favorite passage. You got that. You got that embroidered on your pillow. You just love it. Oh, yes. Today I get to submit to my husband. And then the next verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay down his life for them. Lay down your life for And how many men, you just love, how many men with a great golf game just love selling your golf clubs to take your bride on vacation? Like, this happens every day, right? I'm being sarcastic, of course. But then at the end of the passage, 
Paul says, wait a second, wait a second. Before you think this is just more law, more law, more law, I want to tell you something. It's about Jesus and the church. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, be united. And the two shall, what? Become one flesh. This, then he says, this mystery is profound, but I'm telling you that it refers to Christ and the church. That in Christ, you are married to him. You are united with Jesus. Theologians call it our mystical union with God the Son. When you come to Christ, you don't just adhere to a set of creeds. You are united with God the Son inwardly and outwardly so that he empowers your life to become what God wants it to become. This is how you change, friend. Because if there's one thing married people know better than anybody is that marriage will change you Anybody remember when you got married? You're like, you're telling your best friends, we'll be friends forever. We'll always know each other. Oh, don't worry. Nothing's going to change. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Fifteen years later, you're like, oh, what's your name again? Because <laughs> marriage changes you. It changes you. And it does, if you let it, it can change you for the better. Because what happens is that person that you marry sees you from the outside. And because they love you, they're going to be honest with you. You look ugly today. Change your clothes. Like, this, is what, this is what marriage could be. Helping you become a better. You like what you see up here? You like this? You like pastor? Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Cheryl, my beautiful wife, who has put up with so much garbage on my behalf. And she has changed me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Seriously. There have been many a Sunday. I got up. I got myself dressed. I was about to go out the house. She said, what are you doing with that on? Get yourself back in the closet. Put something else on. Yes. She has helped me become better. This is what marriage does. It's good. If you like Cheryl, you can thank me. Amen. Praise God. But my point is that what Christ does is he unites himself to us to empower us to change. See, you're not just fighting that alcoholic addiction alone, friend. You're not just fighting that pornography addiction alone. You're not just fighting that greed, that lust, that materialism, that consumerism, that, 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 that desire to have everybody like you, and you hate the fact that you need everybody to like you, and you wish you could get over that, and you want to get over it, and you want to fight it, but I want to tell you something. You're not fighting those things alone. Christ is there with you, empowering you to become the person he wants you to be. He unites himself to you. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 6. If we have been united with him in death, we will be united with him in resurrection. And he says, we know that the old self, we know that the old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin, that, that, that old nature might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by it. For one who has died to uh, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. Christians, listen, write this down if you're taking notes. Christians don't just follow Jesus. Christians are united with Jesus. We are united with him. Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. Jesus empowers you to say no to godlessness and yes to godliness. Then look at this. 
back to Ruth and Boaz, because that's what this story is talking about. It says also, verse 10, Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Ma the widow of Malon, I bought to be my wife. Look at this, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, I want to make this dead man live on. This is what Jesus does for you. He takes your deadness and he causes it to live on. And then he says this, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Why is that all there? What is this about? Because again, the gate was the judicial center where people could plead their rights before those in power. And I want to tell you how this applies to you and me. That because of Jesus, we get to come into the throne room of heaven and plead our case to a God who will hear us now. This is why you say in Jesus' name when you pray. It's not abracadabra. It's not like, oh, Lord, I wish you'd change my husband. I've been praying for it, but I guess I haven't been saying in Jesus' name, so abracadabra. No. It's you're standing in Jesus' name. You're coming before the throne of justice. You're pleading your case, and you're saying, I don't come in my righteousness. I come in Jesus' righteousness. He gives you rights before the Father to call on him and know he hears you. Number four, Jesus is our true redeemer because he brings us to completion. He brings us to completion. And if there's one thing you need to know about Jesus, he's not going to give up on you until he completes you. Verse 11 of the story, picking it back up. Then all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Okay, you've married the girl. We're witnesses. And then they say that, may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Those are powerhouse names in Israel. I want you to see what's happened. Ruth, the member of the Moabites, the foreigner, the one who's tied up with those people who caused Israel to commit sexual immorality, she is now being prayed for by the people of Israel to become like their great grandmother. This is a miracle. Total transformation. I wonder how many of you look at the stories of the Bible and say, I could never be like David. I could never be like Moses. I could never be a good person. I could never be a real righteous man. And I want to tell you something. No, you can't be in your own power. But Christ can change your legacy. Then it says this. May you act worthily in Ephrathah. In other words, may you be worthy. Like, who makes us worthy? Christ makes us worthy before God. And may you be renowned. In, in other words, may you be known in the house that God built. His house. How do, I, how do I get known in heaven? Through Christ and his union with me. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar boarded you. If you know the story of Tamar at all, you know that girl was not exactly moral. And she, like, she like acts like a prostitute. She sleeps with her father-in-law, and she has babies. And what's going on here? And now she's renowned. Why? Because God can take whatever mess you've made and turn it into a message for your life to share with the world that he's better and he's able to do amazing things for people. May you be like this. In other words, I'm changing your legacy. I'm turning the ship of your lineage so that you no longer have to be like your father or your mother or where you came from or your neighborhood. Now you get to march forward into the promises of God and change it for your descendants. And so here's what happens then. 
So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her, they have a son, and the women said to Naomi, I want to see, this is amazing. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nurture of your old age for your daughter-in-law. Who's the daughter-in-law again? Who? Ruth. For Ruth, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons. This is the final testimony of Ruth in the book. This is the last thing that they're going to say about her. Why is this significant? Because in Israel, to have seven sons was considered to have a perfect life, a perfect family. And notice, it's the women praising the former foreign woman. Like, this doesn't happen. Ladies, I love you. Don't take this the wrong way. But it's true. It's hard for a woman to praise another woman. And it happens in abundance here. And, and, they're, and they're just like, may you be blessed. And we believe this is amazing. And actually Ruth, who she's better than the perfect man. He has completed her. So that her testimony is no longer the foreigner who doesn't belong. Now she is the perfected wife of the man of God. My Bible tells me this is what Jesus does for us. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to what? Completion. To the day of Christ Jesus. Summing up. Jesus is our true redeemer. He fulfills the law. He pays our debt. He unites himself to us. And he brings us to completion. And now the response. Look with me again. Verse 13. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. Verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wow. <laughs> Did you see this coming from the beginning? A no-name foreign woman is David's great-grandma. Amazing. The, the story has changed, and she gives birth to a guy named Obed. Now, what does Obed's name mean? Because biblical names are significant. It means a servant who worships. Listen to me. I'm just trying to tell you. If you know that Christ has fulfilled the law, paid your debt, united himself to you, and has um, brought you to completion in the eyes of God, what it does is it produces two things in you. We, this is number five in your notes, we worship him and serve others in response because we know how much he's done for us. We are people who serve and give. Why? Because we know God has given to us. So here's how that unpacks waters. Don't just pack up and check out for me for a moment. Just listen. We got waters on wheels starting, an opportunity to get to Info Central, and you open up your car. You become a Jesus Uber for somebody. Amen. Gospel Uber. Hallelujah. I'll bring you to church. You can't get, I'll bring you there so you can hear the word of God. No money involved. No, the, your reward's going to be in heaven. You're going to get something far better. Hallelujah. You were going to church anyway, so don't complain. Hallelujah. We got, we got this opportunity with Lenore's Pantry to bless others during the holiday season. Shower them with blessings. 
And then in the first of the year, we're going to do something new at Water Church. We're doing foster care. We're going to partner with the social services of the state to get children put in families who will care for these children. 8,000 children need homes right now in our area. This is what the church is here for. This is what it means to be in the church. See, it doesn't doesn't mean you're not in the church just because you come and listen to me scream at you for 45 minutes. You're the church because you know what Jesus has done for you. And you go out there and you bring it out there to people who had no shot because you knew you had no shot. But Jesus saved you. And you bring it out. See, that's a church I want to be a part of. I don't know about you. I want to be a part of a church where the community is glad they're here. When I see us, what we do for others, they praise our Father who is in heaven.